Well, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 17, and we're going to look at the first four verses this morning. Luke 17, 1 through 4. God's Word says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. The great plague lasting from 1665 to 1666 was the last major epidemic of the bubonic plague to occur in England. The outbreak was centered, concentrated, in the city of London where an estimated 100,000 people died in 18 months. That's astounding. Almost a quarter of London's population. Well, that's a devastating pandemic, and perhaps during these times of the coronavirus we can, uh, we can identify with what they were going through. No one had any clue as to how this disease was contracted or how it spread. There was no cure. And contracting the plague meant an almost certain painful death. Wealthy people fled the city while the poor were left behind to fend for themselves. And it was a time of great fear and anxiety, of course, over this unseen Black Death, as it was called. Well, a Puritan pastor at the time, his name's Ralph Venning, he was writing a treatise on sin at the time, and when he finally published it, he entitled his book, The Plague of Plagues. Of course, the Great Plague in London and beyond was certainly devastating to men, women, and children during those days. However, Venning tells us that there is a plague upon mankind that is more devastating than the great plague, and that is the plague of sin. And that was the point Ralph Venning was making with that provocative title. These people had just gone through the plague, and he says, if you think the plague was bad, here's something even worse. It's the plague of sin. He writes, it cannot be but extremely useful to let men see what sin is, how prodigiously vile, how deadly mischievous, and therefore how monstrously ugly and odious a thing sin is. Now, he didn't write this to be sadistic. Rather, he, he knew that seeing the sinfulness, the seriousness of sin, paves the way to see and admire the free grace of God. And it promotes faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who can deliver us from the plague of sin. And he knew that when you see the sinfulness of sin for yourself, you want to flee from it 
and follow the Lord more closely. And when you see the sinfulness of sin and how damaging it is to your life, it makes you think the way of holiness is very desirable. And when you see the damage that it does in other people's lives, you have compassion for them, concern for their souls. Well, you can still buy Ralph Venning's book. The title has changed. The title is The Sinfulness of Sin. You can find The Plague of Plagues online if you care to to delve into that work. But in our passage today, Jesus addresses sin. And his remarks are best understood through the same lens by which Ralph Venning understood sin. Because, of course, Venning uh, was only writing what Jesus had given us, what God had given us in his word. Jesus would agree with Venning that sin is prodigiously vile, deadly, mischievous, and monstrously ugly and odious. Sin is a serious matter. And that's the note that Jesus strikes here and why he commands his listeners in verse 3 to pay attention to yourselves Be on the lookout. Be aware. Be careful. Sin is a serious thing, and we should not be nonchalant about it in ourselves or in other people. Jesus took our sin problem so seriously that he took on human flesh, came to earth, and he died to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Sin indeed is a plague from which we need to be healed. And Jesus is the one to cure us. Now, in the passage today, Jesus gives us three things that I want to highlight. He warns us of tempting others to sin. Then he enjoins us to confront sin in our brothers and sisters. And thirdly, he commands us to forgive others who sin, even repeatedly against us. Now this is real living by faith here that Jesus is encouraging. Let's look at each, each of these. Tempting sin, confronting sin, and forgiving sin. First, tempting sin. Verse 1 says, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Now that phrase in verse 1 that's translated temptations to sin is actually one word in the Greek. And that word is scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal or scandalous from. And it's sometimes in scripture rendered stumbling block. And it literally refers to the part of the trap, of a trap, where the bait is. So the word means that which causes someone to become entrapped, to fall, stumble, or to be hindered in any way. And that's right. Temptations are stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks, baited traps, obstacles, hindrances are a certainty in life, Jesus says. In fact, the Greek literally says that it is impossible. The word impossible is in there. It is impossible, but that stumbling blocks will come. It's not possible to go through this life 
without facing temptations. Temptations are inevitable and certain in life. It is going to happen in a sinful world coupled with our sinful flesh and the activity of the devil and his minions. See, the Christian pilgrimage is fraught with danger. The, the path is narrow and rocky, and you're going to be tempted. Well, Jesus gives us a very stern, sobering warning here. Yes, he's saying temptations will come, but woe to the one who causes people to stumble. Woe to the one who causes people to stumble. Do not cause other people to stumble by your actions or by your words or by your attitudes or by your neglect of duty. Woe to the one whose bad example does spiritual harm to others. And Jesus is especially concerned, he says, about these little ones. And he means the vulnerable, those who are spiritually at risk. Yes, children, but also those who are not as mature in their faith, children in the faith, those who might be easily led astray, who may not have the wisdom, experience, or maturity to avoid stumbling blocks that come their way. Jesus goes on to say in verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble, sin. The word sin there in the ESV is again the word stumble, scandalon, as in verse 1. The punishment, he says, for causing someone to stumble in their faith is so great, it would be better for you if you died a violent death before you caused a vulnerable one to stumble. That's a very strong remark. Now, a millstone, he talks about having a millstone tied around your neck. That's a, a very large stone. Perhaps you've seen some of these uh, stones that were used to crush grain and grind grain. And, and they usually have a trough, a, a stone trough, and the, 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 grind, the, the millstone goes around and it grinds the grain. So it's very big and very heavy. And to have one tied around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea, that would be a terrifying way to die, wouldn't it? But that would be better for you than if you caused someone else to stumble in their faith. Especially if they're a young believer looking to you, your example. Why? Well, to cause someone to stumble is actually assisting the devil in his work. That's a heinous thing to do. And the Lord doesn't take it lightly. A violent death before causing someone to stumble would be better for you, Jesus says. Jesus went all the way to, to the cross to die, to free us from the guilt and bondage of sin. And when we lead others astray, we are directly opposing his work. And that's why he takes it. So seriously, it's the sternest of warnings, but it highlights for us the depth of love the Lord has for his children. He's like a mama bear protecting her cubs. In fact, the scriptures use that kind of imagery to talk about God. The Lord protects and vindicates his children. And if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, woe to you. 
There are wolves and sheep's clothing around us. And the Lord sees this, and he's going to protect his children. And that same giving, protective love that we experience from the Lord should overflow from us to others. We should have the same attitude to sin that Jesus does here. That it is a serious thing, something not to be trifled with. We should seek to protect one another from sin, not cause one another to sin. So, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to the way that you're behaving. Pay attention to who's watching. 1 John 2.10 says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling, not only in yourself, but in others as well. To love and to walk in the light is what Jesus is calling us to. If you really love someone, you will make every effort to keep them away from sin, which is enslaving and destructive to them. And that's the first point that Jesus says. The second point Jesus raises here is that we should confront sin. We should take sin seriously enough that we confront sin when we, when we see a brother or a sister falling into sin. Verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now we can go to two extremes when it comes to this verse. Uh, uh, the first is what Jesus is warning about here. He says to his disciples, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And the alternative would be to say nothing at all. To be indifferent to him. To let him keep on sinning. Those who, like myself, who are non-confrontational here, we tend towards that extreme. We might excuse the, the duty that Jesus gives us here by saying, well, it's none of my business. Or, well, I don't want to be judgmental. Or perhaps we just don't care. Fear, apathy, these things keep us from caring for people when they fall into sin. We're afraid of their reaction if we do say something. So we keep quiet. But the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear. If we truly love someone, then we won't be afraid. We will, we will try to do what's best for them. Or if we're apathetic, that's, that's just a form of hate. Apathy says, I don't care, I can't be bothered. Love says, I care, and I am bothered. The other extreme reaction, we can do nothing on one side, but on the other extreme reaction is to be harsh in rebuking the sinner, to come down like a ton of bricks on their head, or to be one of those proud people who revel in rebuking others, put people in their place. Well, neither one of those is an exhibition of love or concern. The scriptures give us several places where there's guidance about confronting people with sin. Leviticus 19.17 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And the Bible tells us that when we confront sin in others, it should be done gently and humbly. Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So see, there's this sense of, of gentleness, of humility, of recognizing that 
we could fall into the same trap that they're stumbling over, that they've fallen into, and to go and humbly approach them. And, of course, Matthew 18 gives us some very specific instructions. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't go on Facebook or social media. Go to the person. If he does not listen, well, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's a, there's a progress to this. You go to the person, then you take a friend, and you show concern and love, and you tell the person, point the, the problem out to the person, and then you go to the church. See, we need each other in the body of Christ. I mean, the church is called the body of Christ, and, and each part is dependent on the other parts. And each part is to emulate the head, Jesus Christ. And how did Jesus treat us? He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. That same attitude is the attitude that we should have when we see a brother or sister who have fallen into sin, that we show compassion. And to remember that the point of a rebuke is to win them to repentance. Win them to repentance. And when they do, to forgive them. And that brings us to the last point that Jesus makes. And, and that is that we are to forgive people who sin against us. It says here, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. <clears throat> and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's not easy. Some of you, some of you know very well. But I want to ask a, a couple of questions and answer them, seek to answer them. The first question is this, why should we forgive? Why should we forgive? Well, the short answer is that the Lord commands us to. I mean, we have that throughout Scripture in many, many different places. And specifically, he commands us to forgive others as God has forgiven us. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And in the Lord's Prayer, of course, we pray, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Ken Sand writes in his book, Peacemaker, Christians are the most forgiven people in the world Therefore, we must be the most forgiving people in the world. Now, the alternative is to not forgive. And that can cause a root of bitterness to spring up in your life. 
And what does a root do? You know, we, many of us have been gardening and planting flowers during this time, uh, well, during summer, spring and summer, especially since we've had some time on our hands uh, during the pandemic and the quarantine, and we've taken the opportunity maybe to plant a few more things than we usually do. And it's been good to see things that have taken root and taken off and grown and flourished. It's very satisfying. But the, but the root of bitterness is not something that we want growing and spreading and bearing fruit in our lives. You see, pretty soon, the bitterness that we have towards one person spreads. It, it begins to permeate your entire life. It creeps into other relationships. It makes you defensive and hypersensitive to offenses from others. You begin to think and then act like everyone is against you because you've been hurt. And if you keep on behaving that way, then everyone soon will be against you. Well, I want to say if that describes you today, if the root of bitterness has taken hold of your life, I would encourage you to consider how much the Lord has forgiven you. Now, I understand that forgiveness can be very difficult, especially when the wounds inflicted upon you by someone are very deep. But remember, you don't forgive in your own strength. It's impossible. We're human. But if God requires us to forgive, then he will grant us the grace and power to forgive. All we have to do is ask, and we should ask, to pray, Lord, I don't want to forgive this person, but I pray that you will give me the grace to do so. Well, as we press on into forgiveness of those who have sinned against us, let's look at what it means, but first what it doesn't mean so we can better understand what it means. Forgiveness, first of all, is not a feeling. You know, sometimes when we pray to the Lord and ask forgiveness, Maybe you've had this experience. Well, I don't feel forgiven. Have you ever had that experience? Lord, forgive me for my sins, and then you just don't feel like the Lord has forgiven you. Well, that's why I picked 1 John 1, 9 as our assurance of pardon this morning. It is a firm promise. If you confess your sins to the Lord, he is just and will, will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is just a promise, a fact. And if you confess your sins to the Lord then you need to trust that promise. It doesn't matter if you feel like it's happened. God has promised that he would do it. And it's a lack of faith. You're sinning in another way if you don't believe the promise. You may feel forgiven or not forgiven, but if you've confessed your sins, the Lord will forgive you. And sometimes with someone who has hurt you deeply, and you go through and you forgive them truly, you still, still may be hurt. And the hurt just doesn't disappear. So forgiveness is not a feeling that you get. There, there may be feelings that come with it, but it's not dependent upon the feelings. And also, uh, forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not just moving on down the line and, and the memory fades and you no longer have a record of it in your head. But I promise you, if the person does it again, it'll come right back. One counselor was talking to a, a wife about her husband, and she said, every time we get in an argument, he becomes historical. 
And the counselor said, you mean hysterical? And he said, no, I mean historical. He goes back and he remembers everything that I've ever done. And he brings it all back up. Now, we read Psalm 103, and it, and it talks there about the Lord remembering our sins no more. It doesn't mean that he can't remember our sins. It just means that he chooses not to remember them and bring them back up and throw them in our face. He's removed them from us, and he's choosing not to count them against us. That's what we're talking about. We're not just saying, get over it. That's not forgiveness. But forgiveness is, is, is purposeful in not bringing sins up. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then thirdly, it does, uh, forgiveness does not mean excusing. Of saying, oh, well, you know, what you did was not really wrong. Or uh, to make some excuse for someone else. You couldn't help it. Yeah, they probably could help it. And what they did was wrong. You don't want to just excuse sin. That doesn't help the other person, and it doesn't help you either. The other person needs to recognize how they have hurt you, to acknowledge that and repent of that. And if you excuse it, they never get to that point, and that's harmful to their souls. That takes us back to the second point. So it's not excusing it. So what does it mean to forgive sin? Well, if you look at the scriptures and what they say about sin, this, the, the Bible speaks often of sin in terms of debt, of debt. We pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, for example. When someone sins, they create a debt. When they sin against someone, they've created a debt. When someone sins against you, they have become, in a sense, indebted to you. They create that debt. And then you have two choices. You can take payments or make payments on that debt. Unforgiveness is when you take payments. It's when you seek to get them to pay for what they've done to you. You can do that through unforgiveness. You can do that passive-aggressively. You can give them the cold shoulder. You can ignore them, or you can abandon the relationship altogether. These are all ways that you exact payment from that person. You can inflict emotional pain on them through your words. And you can actually inflict physical pain on them. There are many ways you can extract vengeance on them. You're making them pay for what they've done to you. And we use that language. You don't have to be in church to use that kind of language. They've created a debt, and you want them to pay that debt. But it will never be enough. See? Bitterness. Again, it takes you back to bitterness. It takes root. It overruns your life. And as someone said, unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping others will die. That's a great quote. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping others will die. On the flip side, though, forgiveness is, it, is when you make payments on the debt yourself. You think about, you know, in finance, if someone owes you something and you cancel the debt, it's costly to you. It's co it costs something. You know, maybe, you, you're not, maybe you're not losing anything, but you're not gaining back what's owed to you. 
you cancel a debt. You're sacrificing payments owed to you. That's costly. And that's why forgiveness can be very difficult. It may mean that you bear the effects and consequences of someone else's actions, sinful actions in your life. You have to bear those things. That's the price that you pay for forgiveness. And that's very difficult, especially when you've been deeply hurt. For this, you need God's grace and help. We cannot do that on our own. Jesus gives us a very difficult scenario in verse 4. A brother sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. One would question whether his repentance was true or not if he's continuing to sin against you seven times in a day. But Jesus says, he doesn't qualify this, you must forgive him. If he doesn't repent, then you go back to second point. With a gentle, you go to him with a gentle and humble rebuke, with an attitude of forgiveness, like Jesus had on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them, and they know not what they do. We go to someone that sinned against us, and we say, you know, I'm coming to you because I want to forgive you. I desire a restoration of the relationship. I want to extend forgiveness to you. But you, there needs to be some acknowledgement on your part, some repentance on your part. That's for the good of their souls and for you to get closure on the, on the sin. Jesus had that kind of attitude. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do as he hung there on the cross. And, of course, 3,000 of them repented. And about 40-some-odd days later, when Peter preached at Pentecost, and the same people that were yelling, crucify, crucify him, they said they were cut to the heart, it tells us. Jesus' prayer was answered on the cross. You see here, we are being called to treat others as the Lord treats us, right? Isn't that what we see here? Jesus paid our debt on the cross, and not just for one sin, but for all our sins. He bore the terrible punishment there so that we might be fully and completely forgiven. When I was a teenager, we sometimes sang a, a little chorus. It went like this. I won't sing it. You can thank me later. He paid a debt he did not owe I owe a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, because Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. See, Christ paid the debt. He bore the cost of our sins, all of our sins, on the cross. And he calls us to forgive, to bear the cost as we have been forgiven by him. And I pray that this morning that you can sing that song, that you know that the debt that you could never pay has been paid by Christ on the cross. And, and as you embrace the forgiveness of God, that that same love and forgiveness that you experience from him that that may fuel your love and forgiveness for others. Sin is indeed a plague upon our world, the plague 
of plagues, as Ralph Venning said. But Jesus Christ is the cure. Let's pray together. Lord, we we do pray that you would grant us grace this morning. Thank you that you are full of grace and truth. And Lord, we pray that if anyone here has never experienced the forgiveness of Christ, we pray that, that they would cry out to you, that they would pray, Lord, please forgive me. I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I have, as David said, sinned against you and you alone. Lord, we pray that we would all have that attitude, continuously confessing our sins and seeking to find forgiveness in you. And I pray, Lord, for those who have never called upon you for forgiveness, that they would know that this morning and that they would be forgiven and cleansed and welcomed into your family. And Lord, maybe there are some here today who are struggling with forgiving others, forgiving someone who has sinned against them. Maybe the hurt runs really deep. Lord, I pray that you would extend grace to them as well, that you would give them a a willing heart to forgive and that the Spirit would empower them to forgive. And Lord, for those of us who have sinned against others, and that probably includes all of us, Lord, grant us repentance. Help us to to recognize how we have hurt others. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to repent. And Father, help us to be circumspect in our lives as we move forward from this place to always be a good example and to not lead others into stumbling or entrapment in sin. Lord, help us to walk in holiness and bring glory to your holy name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.